listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 24th day of November 2017. Welcome to episode 324 of the Corbett Report podcast, Data is the New Oil. Now, as you'll know by now, we are doing a series of follow-up podcasts to the Corbett Report's recently launched documentary, Why Big Oil Conquered the World, which itself was a follow-up to How Big Oil Conquered the World. Together, those two documentaries making a single three-part, uh, three-hour whole that I hope you will have already watched by now. And if not, please do go and watch the complete documentary and or read the transcript and or listen to the MP3 audio completely for free in its entirety at CorbettReport.com slash Big Oil. So you get the idea of what this topic is really about today. Uh, we are going to be discussing one of the aspects of the Big Oil documentary that wasn't able to fit into that three-hour time window. Just like in the previous previous episode of this podcast on sustainable development, we were talking about the sustainable development angle of the big oil into environmentalism into technocracy agenda. Well, today we're going to be focusing more on the techno technocratic agenda itself and how it relates to the oil industry or the post-carbon era all of these concepts swirling around, and there is more to say about that than was contained in the Why Big Oil Do Conquered the World documentary. So let's get to that today. But before we do so, uh, I am, again, assuming that you have seen the Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary, but if you have or if you have not, it might be a good idea just to brush up on the basics of what is technocracy? This is still not an, a term or a concept or an idea that is in common usage at this point. So it is a good idea to get the baseline. Now, of course, I did go through the history and the definition and, and some of the people involved with this technocratic agenda and technocracy, Inc., in Why Big Oil Conquered the World. But let's go back to a previous conversation that I had with the author of Technocracy Rising, pa Patrick Wood, who was featured in the Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary, to uh, a conversation that we had in 2015, talking about his then brand new book on Technocracy Rising, where we talked about this concept of technocracy and answered the question, what is technocracy? Well, I am so glad to see you tackling this subject in particular, because for many years I've felt like a, if not a lone voice in the wilderness, at least a lonely voice in in an vast expanse of, uh, of uh, alt-media forest, but there aren't too many people covering this idea of technocracy, transhumanism, and, uh, and all of the related subjects that go along with it. So my hat's off to you for covering this topic in a very thoroughly researched and documented book um, that I hope... I will commend to the listener's attention, and I hope they will check it out. But let's start in on this conversation by addressing the, the big topic, technocracy. What is technocracy? And obviously, you lay out the history you, you, from the, the philosophical inception of this idea in the 18th, 19th centuries through its uh, creation in the 20th century. But let's talk about a definition that comes from a uh, one branch of technocracy known as Technocracy, Inc., 
that is uh, cited in this in this book. Uh, you say, quote, or actually, the technocrats say, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population of this continent, North America. For the first time in human history, it will be done as a scientific, technical, engineering problem. Can you expand a little bit on that definition and this idea of technocracy and how it relates to people's lives today? Oh, I, I sure can. You have to go back in history. Uh, yeah, it's a broad question when you say let's apply it to current our current day, but you have to go back in history and look at the original model for technocracy that was developed in the 1930s in particular. And there was an organization called Technocracy Inc. <clears throat> that was formed uh, uh, by a couple of people uh, after they were booted from Columbia University. There was a brief stint where uh, the technocracy movement was housed at Columbia. Uh, they got support from Columbia for um, you know, doing a couple of um, continental water studies and stuff. And, and many of the engineers and scientists that were part of technocracy were from Columbia University, not all, but most. Um, they got booted for a number, of, uh, a couple of reasons, uh, mostly because um, the co-founder, uh, Howard Scott, turned out to be disingenuous, uh, kind of a promoter type, and he didn't represent himself correctly and didn't have the PhD that everybody assumed he had. And so Columbia didn't put up with that very long. They said, hey, man, you're, you, know, you lied to us once, you're out of here. And so they started this organization called Technocracy Inc. And that's really where, where we see the main documentation now being that was created for the tech, technocracy model that I believe is being implemented today in today's world. It was based on energy. Um, they believed that capitalism was dead. It was right in the heat of the Great Depression. They thought that uh, politicians were responsible for killing capitalism because – well, people are angry with politicians today too, right? So, <laughs> at what's going on? But they were—they didn't have any use for politicians whatsoever. And the scientists and engineers at Columbia—and by the way, I'm not bashing all scientists and engineers. That's not the intent here. There were a few that bought into this at the time. They believed that because technology had come into society, that the very fabric of society had changed. And therefore, the politicians were unable to manage society because they didn't understand the technology. That was a reasoning, basically. So as a group, they stood up and says, you know, uh, if we don't step in as scientists and engineers and do something about this to save society from itself, society's going to crumble. And, you know, World War II or World War III is going to, you know, come about immediately and the world's going to destroy itself. And you have to remember, too, this is all on the heels of World War I, which was really the first mechanized war that used technology in the history of the world. And it was appalling for everybody, especially for the scientists and engineers who took the blame for creating the technology that was used in World War I. So they had a guilt. They were suffering under a guilt trip right at that point. So they developed this energy-based economic model that was literally based on energy, not, not on price, uh, not on supply and demand like traditional economics. And they believed that, um, that they could use the scientific method to engineer society in a way that it would create a utopia, essentially. It was very much a utopian system. 
As I say, there's more information about the history and figures surrounding the technocratic movement as it existed in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and the technocracy agenda generally in why big oil conquered the world, including the history of Howard Scott and M. King Peak Oil Hubbard, and how they got together to write the technocracy study course and basically formalize the idea of technocracy. Uh, in that documentary. So I do suggest that you go there to refresh yourself on that if you do need a refresher. But at first glance, without thinking about it too deeply, it might not be apparent what the link is at all between oil, the oil industry, the oligarchs, and this new era of data-driven everything, smart grids, transhumanism, all of this crazy AI stuff, and all, all the technology that's coming around. What exactly is the link? Well, in fact, the perfect encapsulation of the idea of the linkage, the historical continuity between the old oligarchy and the coming uh, technocratic class is perfectly captured in a phrase that I wish I had heard when I was creating the documentary. It has appeared on the scene this year, and as far as I can tell, it traces back to The Economist, which wrote its hot take on the uh, the big internet giants back in May of this year under the title, The World's Most Valuable Resource is No Longer Oil, But Data. And that has been shortened to the catchphrase, Data is the New Oil. I suggest you just type that into a search engine, preferably not Google, and see what comes up, because there have been a lot of people picking up on this idea of late. For example, in August, we had the CBC, the good old Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Data is the new oil. Your personal information is now the world's most valuable commodity, which says, quote, There was a time that oil companies ruled the globe, but black gold is no longer the world's most valuable resource. It's been surpassed by data. The five most valuable companies in the world today, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Google's parent company, Alphabet, have commodified data and taken over their respective sectors. Data is clearly the new oil, says Jonathan Taplin, director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab and the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. But with that domination comes responsibility, and jurisdictions are struggling with how to contain regulate and protect all those ones and zeros. For instance, Google holds an 81% share of search, according to data metric site NetMarketShare. By comparison, even at its height, Standard Oil only had a 79% share of the American market before antitrust regulators stepped in, Taplin says. End quote. The article obviously goes on from there, and there are many articles in this vein that have popped up in the last few months. Data is the new oil. In fact, it has become such a sort of catchphrase at the moment that the BBC, of all places, was compelled to issue its own editorial telling us that data is not the new oil, <laughs> where basically they're complaining that the analogy is not just imperfect, it could be actually misleading if we take it too far, as is the way of these things. An analogy comes about that seems uh, interesting and provocative and gets a lot of attention, and then the naysayers come along saying, well, yeah, but now you're missing the nuance of this and that. So it's an interesting phrase that clearly has captured the imagination of a number of people, including the CEO of MasterCard, who was recently in 
Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, talking at the Future Investment Initiative at the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton shortly before it became a prison for all those Saudi princes. I, uh, I believe that data is the new oil. And I'm saying it in this country because I believe that the prosperity that oil brought in the last 50 years, data will bring in the next 50, 100 years if we use it the right way. And unlike oil, it's not finite because it's generating each time you walk because your mobile phone is generating the data. And I wish I could generate oil by walking around, but you can't, but you can generate data. And if you use that data well, so let me explain what I mean by that. You can use data well for commercial reasons, you can do it well for societal reasons, and you can do it and use it well for individual reasons. What you have to be careful about is keeping it safe and managing the ethics around how it's used. And that's to Tijam's point about maybe one day looking at regulation of how data is used. So let me give you a couple of examples of how you could use it in a social setting. We just worked with a company called Deep Macro to help understand after the Houston hurricane using not just payments data, but satellite imagery of the way industrial activity was progressing, including mobile phone movement, and you can figure out which part of an area is more impacted than the other. You can help direct first responders and aid and methodology of recovery to the right destination. Why were you involved in that? Because I believe that people like companies like ours, if all we do is view our data as an opportunity to do a commercial enterprise with it, I think we're leaving enormous opportunities on the table. I'm a believer that you can use data both for doing well and doing good at the same time. So you're talking about reframing your, your purpose? Absolutely. I, I consider data to be a public good that cannot not be used for purposes of the type that I'm describing. Now, I also use it for commercial good. I use it for everything from Boots trying to figure out where to relocate its pharmacies and how to redesign the pharmacies. I use it for McDonald's trying to figure out whether they should have all-day breakfast in their menu. You can do all of these things as well. You can help consumers do comparison shopping online, something that Mohammed knows a great deal about. Or you can also do things of the type that I'm describing. You can do, it, you can do things with tourism and the impact that you could generate by generating the right kind of crowd coming into your country. You can do a ton of things with data. The question is, do you have the right approach to keeping it safe? Do you have the right approach to its ethics? And do you have the right approach to exploiting it in bite-sized chunks? So data is the new oil, and we are entrusting this new oil, this new prized commodity with all the riches that it can bring to our society for social good into the hands of the likes of the CEO of MasterCard and his monopolist corporate cronies. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Oh, wait, that sounds pretty much exactly like the original, the birth of the oil industry under the original oligarchy, doesn't it? Interesting. And, uh, well, let's just put that particular usage of this data is the new oil catchphrase into its proper context. As I say, that was at the Future Investment Initiative at the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton just a few weeks ago. And that was the conference where, amongst other things, they were announcing, oh, we have a new citizen of Saudi Arabia. Yes, Sophia, the robot. In fact, the very robot that just last year announced it was going to destroy humans 
is now a citizen of Saudi Arabia. Well, isn't that cute? Now, I, I guess she leapfrogs over women in the Saudi Arabian pecking, pecking order and becomes a full-fledged uh, citizen. But uh, this is the kind of gimmick that is being floated um, as data becomes the new oil and as everything is structured around how do we become more not just productive, but more managed and ordered in a ones and zeros binary sense. And that was also the conference at which they announced Neom. Yes, the $500 billion mega city in the desert, over 10,000 square miles, 33 times bigger than New York City, that is going to be carved out of the desert, out of the sand in uh, northwestern Saudi Arabia, and is going to be the techno smart city of the future Saudi Arabia plans to build a 500 billion dollar mega city looking for a new vacation destination how about Saudi Arabia no seriously the Saudi Arabian government says it plans to build a 500 billion dollar mega city that stretches into Jordan and Egypt and is completely powered by renewable energy the project is called Neom and will measure 10,230 square miles, which is 33 times larger than New York City. One of the main goals of Neom will be to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy in an attempt to move it beyond oil. The megacity will focus on industries such as energy and water, biotechnology, food, advanced manufacturing, and entertainment. The $500 billion will come from the Saudi government, its sovereign wealth fund, and local and international investors. Indeed. So, there is a smart city of the future on its way there in Saudi Arabia with half a trillion dollars of Saudi oil money and other investment money being funneled into it. Uh, Are you starting to see some of the linkage right now between this move to the post-carbon world and the post-carbon economy and the monopolization of the next tool of control? Just as oil was a tool of control that the oligarchs wielded to further consolidate their power and and control over society, so too is data and all things technocratic being used in the service of that same agenda. And don't take my word for it. Take the word of everyone's favorite billionaire eugenicist and data oligarch, Bill Gates, who has just announced his own plan to create his own desert mega smart city of the future, not in Saudi Arabia, but in the good old U.S. of A. All right, check this out. If Bill Gates gets his way, Arizona could be home to a brand new cutting edge smart city. A real estate investment firm owned by the computer billionaire recently bought a giant plot of land in the Far West Valley for $80 million. The company bought 25,000 acres in Tonopah, that's about 50 miles west of Phoenix. We're supposed to, they're supposed to call the new city Belmont, and the plans include space for 80,000 homes, nearly 500 acres for public schools. They apparently want to fill the city with driverless cars, data centers, and digital networks. The proposed I-11 freeway would connect the Belmont area to Las Vegas. Gates would like the city to be about the same size and population, apparently, of Tempe. No word on when the project will begin. 
Now, I imagine I don't have to work too hard to connect the dots here for my regular viewers and listeners, namely those dots connecting this idea of these smart cities where everything will be networked and tracked and surveilled and databased in the Internet of Things that is constantly taking tabs of you and everything that you own and what you are doing and who you are interacting with, and the dot over here, where people are living in a completely controlled technocratic police state, I think those things go together quite obviously. But there are always new people tuning in, and sometimes it's good to go over and flesh out the details of how a system like this works and why it is not something to be embraced as an oh-so-convenient and oh-so-wonderful thing that's going to make us all happy and living in a Jetsons-like future. So, never fear, the Corbett Report is here. A few years ago, I did a report specifically detailing this and why this is such a problem, and incidentally, what we can do about it, in a report entitled Smart Tyranny, How to Resist the Smart Grid. You would have to have been living under a rock to have missed the rollout of so-called smart technologies in recent years. But for those unfortunate rock dwellers who have somehow avoided the smart propaganda... There is no shortage of flashy, cartoonish PR puff pieces that are willing to sell it to you. In this edition of Digital Futures, we're really revved up about the smart home of the future. Now, this isn't some minority report-style novelty. Rather, it's already a reality. And we can soon expect to see between 15 and 30 intelligent connected devices and sensors in an ordinary household. And what's really fascinating here is that in the near future, we can expect to see a truly integrated smart home with connectivity across devices. Although these bubbly, feel-good, lowest common denominator commercials leave the viewer with the warm fuzzies, they do little to explain what this so-called smart technology actually is. Stripped of all the hype and sweaty-palmed hyperbole of the massive PR campaign surrounding it, the only thing that smart really means is that a given piece of technology can be linked up to a network to send and receive information. The real question, of course, is why we supposedly need every gadget and appliance in our home, from our toaster to our thermostat, to be networked at all. Like all such questions, there are two answers, the cover story and the true story. The cover story is that networking these technologies will allow us to reduce the amount of power that we consume and, as an added bonus, save us money on our monthly power bill. As sensors become cheaper and cheaper, and technologies like the internet and wireless communication become widespread, utilities are adding more and more sophisticated sensors to the grid. And this means one thing, more information. This flood of data will be quickly parsed to locate power failures, reroute electricity, or avoid overheating power lines. That means utility companies can stop relying on grandma to let them know the power's out. It also means they can better deal with power line failures like the one that blacked out the northeastern U.S. in 2003. Within the next decade, sensors are likely to be everywhere. One type, commonly known as a smart meter, will do to homeowners what the utilities have long done to factories. Two-way communication will give both utilities and customers better information about who's using what and when. It could even let utilities do things like temporarily turn off a smart appliance in your home to help avert a blackout. What's more, the linking of all of these appliances into one seamless personal network, the cover story assures us, will finally allow for the Jetsons-like future that has been promised us for decades. 
You can even set the mood for yourself. So if you're longing for a romantic evening with your loved one, a nice bottle of wine, well, all you do is you simply press the touchscreen button on the smart board and your favorite music will play, the lights will go down, and then it's just time to sit back and relax. If you were to notice that you're running out of wine, you can, for instance, add red wine to your grocery list on the smart board. The smart board helps you with your everyday chores. It's there to make life easier. Those with properly functioning bull excrement detectors might question whether the embedding of RFIDs and processors in our fridges and coffee makers and egg timers is really all about saving a few watts of electricity or the hassle of pressing a few buttons. This is where the true story of smart technology comes in. Smart technology represents less of a breakthrough in power distribution and more of a revolution in complete, constant, panopticon-like surveillance of everyone. As these smart technologies begin to invade our homes, we are becoming mere nodes in a giant network that we yet but dimly comprehend. Called the Internet of Things, the plan is to create a network that will eventually include every single object on the planet. And as the public is finally becoming aware, such networks provide golden opportunities for corporations and governments alike to collect data, and spy on the population. This is not mere conjecture. Before becoming enmeshed in an affair that ultimately derailed his career, former CIA director David Petraeus bragged openly about how these smart technologies would allow intelligence agencies to spy on everyone in their own homes using their own appliances. Speaking at a summit for InQtel, the CIA's venture capital firm, Petraeus noted, Items of interest will be located, identified, monitored, and remotely controlled through technologies such as radio frequency identification, sensor networks, tiny embedded servers, and energy harvesters. In practice, these technologies could lead to rapid integration of data from closed societies and provide near-continuous, persistent monitoring of virtually anywhere we choose. Whether Petraeus' own downfall as a result of FBI eavesdropping on private emails as part of a plan to warn future would-be whistleblowers, poetic justice, or mere irony, it is nonetheless instructive. When everything that anyone does is tracked, traced, and databased at all times, from our dishwasher usage to our television viewing to our toilet flushes, no one will be able to avoid the gaze of the state, regardless of whether or not they have something to hide. As IT World's Kevin Fogarty observed, if J. Edgar Hoover were alive, he would die of jealousy at the technologies available to the would-be big brothers of today. As nightmarish as this seems, the possibilities for tyrannical misappropriation of this technology are even worse. Given that networked appliances allow for remote access, smart technology actually raises the specter that governments and corporations will be able to control the items in your own home. Here again, as much as this sounds like Buck Rogers' fantasy or Orwellian nightmare, it is in fact mundane reality. As far back as 2008, California lawmakers were already tabling legislation that would mandate the installation of smart technologies and allow government bodies to automatically adjust homeowners' thermostats up or down to conserve energy at peak usage times. The stark truth is that any appliance can be turned on or off, adjusted, or otherwise manipulated by anyone with access to the network remotely, including your own car. The slide that's been omitted uh, showed a result of uh, the researchers at UCSD and the University of Washington hacking into the dashboard display of a typical American sedan, making it show that the car was going 140 miles an hour while in park. Most worrying of all, whether or not we want to use these technologies, the average person is being left with little choice. More and more of the appliances and household goods we use have these technologies embedded by default, and now... 
thanks to the so-called smart meters that are increasingly being installed in people's homes without their knowledge or consent, that choice is being removed entirely. I trust that that gives at least a taste of this information, and if you are hungry for more, I will direct you to the full video, which will be linked in the show notes. But even then, it's still just a taste, because this is one of those topics, like so many other topics that I cover at The Corporate Report, that cannot be isolated or contained like a specimen in a petri dish. It it expands outward and encompasses so many other related topics and subtopics that it becomes overwhelming, perhaps intentionally so. This isn't just about smart appliances. This is about smart, networked everything and the entire reordering of society that is implied by this revolution that we are currently undergoing. This is about the cashless society. This is about driverless cars. This is about 5G millimeter wave cellular networks. This is about nationwide facial recognition databases that themselves are tied into nationwide facial scanning camera networks. This is about the biometric identification control grid. Ultimately, this is going to be about autonomous weapons and drones and artificial intelligence and all of these crazy technologies that are just coming into view now. And as I say, it's such a vast topic that it is overwhelming. No single person can possibly understand or encompass it all. But it is important to understand that all of these technologies are resting on an infrastructure that is being put into place right now. And that infrastructure is understandable, at least in its broad outlines. That is the smart grid that is being slotted in right now. And it is interesting to see this formation of the smart grid that will be this the infrastructure upon which the superstructure of the technocratic police state will be erected. It's interesting to see the parallels between that smart grid infrastructure going into place and the infrastructure that came in in the late 19th, early 20th century that codified the oil industry into society. The way that our society is now built around the oil industry and its byproducts to the point where our cities are literally engineered around the roadways that are carrying the cars, which of course are fueled by the gasoline, which comes from the petrochemicals. This is this is all a system that didn't just exist. It wasn't just there. All of this infrastructure was created and put in uh, through a concerted effort over a period of decades, as I outlined at least in part, in how big oil conquered the world. And now we are seeing the laying of the infrastructure for the 21st century equivalent of the oil commodity, which shaped the uh, early 20th century society. Now, in the early 21st century, we're seeing the society being shaped around the new commodity, data and everything that that implies. And this isn't, again, this isn't just a fanciful analogy. Oh, data and oil, and here are some interesting parallels. No, there are real historical linkages here as embodied, as, as perhaps best represented in the form of someone like M. King Hubbard, a useful tool for the oil industry. Of course, a uh, petrochemical researcher engineer who did his service for Royal Dutch Shell, uh, where he developed, of course, the peak oil hypothesis for which he's best known. 
but where he went to after Technocracy Inc. Uh, was dashed upon the shores of reality and kicked out of Columbia University, but not before he had, of course, penned the Technocracy Study Course, which really not just predicted, but was predicated on the development of something like the smart grid. Now, all of this really important history was detailed in much greater detail in the interview that I recorded with Patrick Wood for Why Big Oil Conquered the World. So here's a little bit more of that interview that you didn't see in the documentary. In the technocracy study course, M. King Hubbard listed seven criteria, seven requirements that were necessary for technocracy. And you got to hand it to engineers to do stuff like this. They're good at that. And the first two things, uh, the first two requirements had to do with energy. Control over production, distribution, and consumption of energy. Without it, he said, technocracy would not work. And we see the smart grid movement. If you look at the history of it just a little bit, the smart grid movement was snuck in in 2009 by Barack Obama. And in 2009, there was stimulus money being thrown around nilly-willy all over the world, actually. It wasn't just our country. Other nations were throwing around stimulus money as well and trying to resuscitate the economy. And smart grid up to that point had no traction anywhere. The technology was out there and several utility companies around the country were offering that sort of service. Nobody wanted it. So the stuff just sat on the shelf. But grants, stimulus grants were offered to utilities to trial, to go out and do some trial balloons with a more massive implementation of smart grid. And the several utilities around the country were picked to receive these grants, and indeed they went out and they bought smart meters and they put them on homes and they started their trials and so on. And since then, it's just exploded. But here's the thing that's greatly disturbing about the smart grid movement is that in 2009, it not only happened in the United States, it happened all over the world, literally. It happened in European countries. It happened in Great Britain. It happened in China, uh, in India, in Japan, in South Korea. At the same time in 2009, all these countries decided to throw stimulus money, which was basically free money at that time, discretionary money, to throw free money at creating a smart grid in all these various countries. And furthermore, there was a a parallel movement to create a global smart grid where all of the individual smart grids within countries would be rolled up into one giant smart grid called a global smart grid. Some people call it the internet of energy, (laughs) the energy web, um, to control all of the energy produced and consumed in the world from a single control point. That blew me away when I discovered that, James. I, at first I thought, eh, okay, it's just another boondoggle, a local boondoggle, you know. But when I saw that there was some 
a masterminding going on on a global basis? Because that can't happen spontaneously everywhere in the world at the same time. Somebody's pulling the strings to make it happen. And uh, so, yeah, it got started in 2009. It's not very long ago. It's a relatively new initiative. But without it, technocracy cannot succeed. It cannot succeed if smart grid is not implemented everywhere. And so it has been. And here we are. This is a coordinated global campaign that is ongoing right now to sell the public on this great new thing that's going to transform our world and is going to be the thing that our society depends on. In the 20th century, it was oil. In the 21st century, it's data. And more specifically, the things that can be done with oil, the things that can be done with data. And those are going to be the products that they sell to us as we happily buy our way into our own enslavement in the technocratic police state control grid. It is a mind-boggling picture, an overwhelming one, and a very intimidating one, because it seems extremely difficult to imagine how lowly people like ourselves at the bottom rung of this power pyramid can possibly fight back against such a coordinated control grid system. But there are things that we can take away about things that we can actually do in our life to start combating this agenda, even as it is still being sold to the public, even as most of the public is still but dimly aware of these technologies that are coming into view and the smart grid that underlies it, there are already people working on ways that we can undermine this agenda, something that Patrick Wood did point out in that interview. It's hard to fight an enemy that you don't recognize or can't see. That's the biggest problem in the world today, in my opinion, is that people have no visibility whatsoever of this issue. They've covered their tracks so well that nobody can see them. How can you fight an enemy that you don't know? I think, I think the famous Chinese general Sun Tzu brought that up hundreds of years ago. You can't fight an enemy that you don't know. <laughs> First, we have to recognize who the enemy is. I think people are resourceful enough that they can find things that would resist it just just fine. Uh, but they have to see the problem first before they could do it. Here's a good example. This recent story of a bill being passed in the United States to allow <clears throat> Internet service providers to sell your browser history to commercial companies and the government too. Well, that's a privacy, a huge privacy issue. Do you really want anybody else having access to your search history, like on Google <laughs> or any other place? The answer is no. I mean, I've never heard anybody say, oh yeah, I want everybody to know my search history. You know, I don't ever search for anything, you know, that I don't want, that I'm embarrassed about or whatever. So <clears throat> this bill passed and it's a huge privacy issue. Everybody's upset about it. Lots of lots of articles and the alt media and stuff, you know, are complaining about it. But another article just came out about a month later 
that some ingenuous uh, uh, programmer types had found out, found, discovered a way, or they, they created a way, to pollute your browser history <laughs> on your own computer, to pollute it with meaningless, nonsensical stuff that would clog their, their network, if you will, with bogus information. That's genius, <laughs> just, but you know, it, 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 it just shows you that if people see a need, they can find a way to throw a monkey wrench in. There's a lot of creativity in the, in the world in that regard. And, um, but if you don't see the problem, of course, you, there's no point in inventing that monkey wrench. Smart grid is a, a weak point. Uh, I believe still, I believe it's still on the Achilles heel, uh, for these people because it's not implemented yet the way it needs to be in the world. They're working on it day and night, but it's not there yet. And there's a lot of people fighting smart grid in various forms around our country and other countries in the world as well. So there might be some, uh, there might be some, uh, some good activism there, if you will, resistance. If, uh, if the smart grid could be effectively scuttled, it would set their plans back 100 years where it belongs. Once again, Patrick Wood of Technocracy.News. And Patrick makes a couple of very important points in that clip that I'd like to point out here. One of which is the simple, straightforward, obvious assertion, but one that needs to be made nonetheless because it is the bedrock of everything that rests upon it which is that it is hard to fight an enemy that you don't know about. If you don't know the enemy exists, if you don't know there is an agenda that is coming, how can you possibly counteract that agenda? So the first step in all of this is informing ourselves and informing others about these issues. And that can be as simple as making this a topic of conversation or when someone raises an issue along these lines to raise the, uh, the, the, the bigger picture, the history, the context. So the more that we know about this agenda and how it is being implemented and in what way and in what place and by whom, the better we can counteract that uh, in our own heads and then in the heads of others, which is the first step along this process. Again, this is a straightforward and obvious thing to, to say, but it needs to be kept in mind. This is the reason for being of the Corbett Report website so that we can better understand and better spread the word about these important issues. It needs to be done, first of all. That is the, the, the horse before the cart. But what is the cart? That is the question. So what do we do once we are armed with some degree of knowledge about these issues? Uh, what do we do to actually counteract it? And the great thing is there are many, many people who once they are thinking and understanding this agenda and realizing the dangers can come up with all sorts of innovative solutions to these problems. And one which Patrick Wood notes there is one that I've talked about before. In fact, we were just talking about it on New World Next Week recently uh, when the uh, the topic of Ancestry.com and 23andMe and all of this came up. We were talking about feeding false data into the system so that the system cannot track and trace you effectively because they have all this garbage data. So garbage in, garbage out. If we're feeding false and fake and garbage data into their databases, then they are not able to uh, effectively rule 
over people with that garbage data. Um, that is an important and interesting and a simple thing that we can and should be doing. Uh, just as one example, uh, I, Skype uh, gets your birth date at some point, and uh, I I have never and never would and never will give my actual birthday to any of these programs or software that asks for my birthday. So it was whatever, January 1st, 1908, or whatever it is that I picked for my birthday. And apparently Skype sends a reminder to people on your birthday. All of your contacts get this reminder. Oh, it's James Corbett's birthday. So I remember one New Year, several years ago, I got this message. I was getting these messages from people. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is not my birthday. And then, and then I realized, oh, it's because Skype doesn't know my birthday. Well, that's, I mean, it's a simple thing to do, but it's something that of course we should be doing. Why on earth would you be giving your birthday to programs like that? I mean, it's just nonsensical to even participate or cooperate with that. It's in fact better than not even filling in that is filling it in in an incorrect way. Um, but of course, that's, I mean, that's just one, one very small part of what we can do to counteract the, uh, the commodification of all our data is to feed garbage data. But there are, as I say, there are so many innovative solutions that are coming to the fore now because of people who are activated and energized and switched on because they have encountered this information and they are starting to see the bigger picture. And one example of that involves a previous guest on the Corbett Report, Josh Del Sol, who you'll remember was featured briefly in the Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary, because several years ago, he was uh, behind, he was the documentary filmmaker behind the Take Back Your Power documentary, talking about the smart meters, why they are such a bad thing, why we need to get rid of them, the surveillance uh, utility for the uh, utility companies and the government, of course, but also the health effects of these smart meters that are being installed now, these smart meters with their microwave radi radiation and the health effects that they are uh, having on people, they need to be stopped. We need to stop this process that most people don't even know is going on, that their regular analog meters that have to be read by a meter reader is now being replaced by a smart meter. Oh, it'll be so great and wonderful, and it can talk to all your appliances. Well, most people don't even know that's happening, but for those who do and want to know, well, what do we do about that? That was part of what the Take Back Your Power movement and, and documentary was about. But now Josh Del Sol is working on another project called the In Power Movement. And that is at inpowermovement.com, where you can watch the first episode of the documentary series that they are producing right now on an innovative new idea for stopping the smart meter installations. And uh, it's a great idea. So I'm going to refer you to that documentary, but just from the InPowerMovement.com website, it says, the InPower docu-series illustrates a powerful new method to restore social justice and accountability. Episode number one focuses on solving the smart meter problem, how we can prevent and reverse the installation of this dangerous technology through holding corporate executives and, and government actors financially accountable for the first time ever. And in so doing, we can restore safety in our homes and bring balance to our world. An interesting idea, but what does that mean in practice? How do you hold individual executives and government officials personally liable for the damages of the, the installation of these smart meters? So it turns out there is a way we can actually hold individuals within corporations and governments accountable for what they are doing. And this has the potential to change everything. 
the next 40 minutes is an overview of how this works. Moving forward, we'll go deeper in future episodes. So Cal, what is this notice of liability process that you have helped to create that we are bringing out? How would you describe it in 30 seconds or less? It's basically a counter offer of a contract that is being implemented to put um, a device on everybody's house. They've got us into a tacit agreement. This clarifies it and expresses the, the counter offer in such a way that those that don't want the meter can say, I don't want a meter. And if you do put a meter on my house, it's gonna cost you X amount of dollars per day, per month, per week, whatever, however you wanna do it in order for you to carry out this contract. We followed Cal as he was invited to present his experience and this liability action to several groups throughout North America. So what's happened here with the smart meters is that they have given you an offer to put a different piece, a different gadget on your house. You already had a contract, they're trying to change it. They do it by tacit agreement. If you don't say no, you've said yes. So everything has to be done that way, it's all contract. And once you can learn this kind of thing, you can start to operate at that level. So you're, it's a level playing field. So now they, things they try to do to you, you can see it for what it is and counteract it because it's all contract. And contracts have to be negotiated. So there's always a meeting of the minds. That's what we've done with this document. We've taken commerce, which is uh, the Babylonian system of money, and we're using it, uh, their type of contracts, tacit agreement, all, this, all the tricks that they do, we are using it against them. And they'll tell you, you can't do that, and that's bunk and all that kind of stuff, but I'm telling you, I've seen enough high-level officials run from this who know a lot more than I do, and they're scared of this. So it does work. It's all about liability. So basically, this process of the notice of liability is uh, applicable for anyone to use, whether they have an analog meter, a so-called smart meter, or anything in between. Even if they have previously given their consent for one of these radiating surveillance meters, they can do this process at any time. Yes, because as you come into knowledge, even though you agreed to it, you, you agreed it um, without full disclosure, so uh, that contract is null and void, and this is now the new contract. So in what countries is this system of commerce, the system, the way that the way that things run? I would say every country. It's worldwide. It's a it's a worldwide system. Commerce can be used for any issue on the planet. Any country or anybody that's doing commerce, which is pretty much the whole planet. Um, this this is the this is the system that's kind of hidden, um, and now you can actually use it. What this talk is about and, and the action we're doing is basically, we're saying that all these illusions, these Wizard of Oz type things, we're saying you as a human being are now liable. You can't hide behind your, your position in a, in a corporation or in a, in a government. What I've noticed in all my dealings over the last 12 or so years is everything has to be done by contract because there's no authority. It's all commerce. Once you understand that, and you operate at that same level as them, not in ignorance where they've tried to keep you, the game changes. It's a game changer. You're now playing 
the proper game in the proper court. Put it this way, a game, uh, there's, a, there's a board that has a bunch of squares, some white and some black. They've got you playing checkers while they're playing chess. It looks the same. Once I got into this liability thing, I had some key public officials step down when they got their notice of default or when, they, when, when bills started coming. And it was always um, about three or four times, it was on the very day they got mail. And then other cases, it was about a week or maybe two weeks later. I'll tell you who quit on the day that he got mail. And you look this up. It was written in McLean's and the Globe and Mail and all that stuff. Kevin Lynch, he was the clerk of the Privy Council. That man knows more about banking and, and instruments like I showed you and the Bills of Exchange Act, all that stuff, than I do. He ran. There was no court. There was no lawyer. He just went, this guy knows this, I'm liable, I'm out of here. And, and you can read it. He had a press conference in the morning and didn't announce any kind of retirement or anything like that. And by noon, no notice. Carol Taylor was another one. She was the finance minister in here. Same thing. Day she got her default, left politics. And that's after I got a whole bunch of letters from the Attorney General um, saying, you can't do this and this is all bunk and there's no basis of law for, for what you're doing. But at the end of the day, she left. At this point, you might be wondering, what do people stepping down from positions of power have to do with getting a smart meter off my house? And how can we simply stop this and other globalist agendas? At the top of the pyramid, uh, where the where the problem lies, they can't do everything. So they they have um, coerced mostly with money in order to get the agenda to actually happen on the ground. Mm -hmm. So if you start removing all those people that are just under them, it stops. Who's gonna Who's gonna actually do it if there's if they're gonna be liable? Without uh, people actually implementing their schemes there are no schemes. Somebody has to actually fulfill this. They're motivated by money. So if now that if there's a document that is enforceable that is gonna take more money away than they are getting, it's just, you know, do the math. Why would I continue with this when it's gonna cost me? I may be getting paid 10 million, but I'm gonna have to pay 300 million over here. Well, I'm, I gotta, I'm out of here. So if the liability is more than what they're gonna get out of it, then it just doesn't make sense to carry on. Yeah. The whole idea is to wake the people up that are, that are participating saying, no, you're gonna be liable if you continue this, this course of action, whether you understand it or not, you're, you're gonna be liable because nobody is immune to it.
as I say, just an incredible and incredibly innovative idea, and just one example of many that can be brought to bear on issues like these and are already having an effect. And I'll direct you to, uh, again, to the InPowerMovement.com website where you can read more and see more about some of the follow-up work they've done showing that this is already having an effect and executives and officials are already resigning their positions because they are getting these liability notices and realizing they are going to be personally liable, personally on the hook for these actions. That is a pretty powerfully effective way of letting the system know that you're not going to lie down and take it. So there's obviously a lot that needs to be explained and go, and go through in, in this case. So on the InPowerMovement.com website, you will find the FAQ with the actual document templates for the uh, notice of liability and the notice of fault and the no notice of default. And there's going to be further documents that come out in the future about the first true bill, second true bill, third true bill, first notice to debtor, second notice to debtor, third notice to debtor, and finally enforcement. So this is a legal process, and it is uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, even if you don't plan to do it personally. And why not? But even if you don't plan to do it personally, you should go to the the uh, the website and take a look through the documents because this is again this is an example of how we are not passive part uh, spectators in this spectacle that's going on around us and oh there's nothing we can do oh poor us we're just going to be locked into this enslavement grid and we'll just have to sit down and take it no you do not have to sit down and take it there are actual things that you can do to counteract this agenda and it must be counteracted if you have watched the how and why big oil conquer the world documentary series you know why this agenda must be thwarted because the oligarchs of old are the datagarchs of our current age and they are going to try to rule you, your family, and everyone around you with an iron fist. Perhaps quite literally, a robotically iron fist. This is the technocratic nightmare that we are being steered into and we have to steer ourselves away from that with all our might. There is just too much at stake here. Now, obviously, there's much more that can and should be said about every single aspect of this technocratic agenda and the people behind it and uh, what we can do to counteract it. But this is the starting point for this conversation. So I'm going to leave it here for today. As always, I'm interested in your input and feedback. Corporate Report members are heartily encouraged to log on to the website and leave your comments and your data and uh, data trail in the steps to counteract this technocratic agenda in the comment section of the website. I look forward to reading your responses. That's going to do it for today. This is James Corbett of CorporateReport.com. Thanking you for joining me. Looking forward to talking to you again very soon. Available now from CorbettReport.com. Oil. The 19th century was transformed by it. The 20th century was shaped by it. And the 21st century is moving beyond it. But who gave birth to the oil industry? And what are they planning to do with that power in a post-carbon world? Heirs to an oil fortune join the divestment drive. There is a price to carbon in their future. The negative impact of population growth. That is important not only for the planet, it is important for the business. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. How and why Big Oil Conquered the World. Watch the documentary for free or purchase a DVD copy at CorbettReport.com slash Big Oil. <laughs>